if you'll uh, leave lyrics up for just a second, that'd be fabulous. From the amount of people who were singing, it seemed like maybe this might be a new song for us. So let's, uh, let's run back through that for just two and a half seconds. Where, where are we? Let's go back. Yep, yep. You have called me higher. Yeah, yeah. I could just sit here. I could just sit here and wait. Yeah, yeah, no. No, no, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. You have called me higher. You have called me deeper. And I'll go where you lead me, Lord. You have called me higher. You have called me deeper. And I'll go where you lead me, Lord. Um, this is a, a faith that is an active kind of faith. And it's in response to those first two verses that, that we sang. We could just kind of sort of camp out. We, we could all kind of get together. Anybody have a tent? Who's got a tent? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, let's get our tents, okay? We're all going to go camping at Lake Thunderbird. And we're just going to like get all just kind of happy together, okay? Is, is that okay? Uh, it's not going to have any purpose whatsoever, okay? It's going to be completely purposeless, but we're just, you know, kind of going to go do it, all right? Uh, you've got the day off on Monday. Uh, I've given it to you, okay? So just call your boss and say, hey, you know what? I got the day off, all right? This random guy with a bow tie, he said, I'm off, okay? Uh, no, no. We, we could go do that, but we have been called higher. We've been called deeper. We've been called to a God who changes us, who, who gets us out of our, our safe bubbles, who tears our walls down. Let God's people say amen. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give us an active faith, one that drives us into those places where you need us most. And all of God's people said John Quincy Adams, Rutherford B. Hayes, Benjamin Harrison, George W. Bush. What do these four men have in common? One of their dads was president. Okay, so amen. That's the old college try. I love it. Yeah. Okay. Sure, I thought it was a cousin. It's fine. So, okay, so two out of four ain't bad. Uh, 50% on Amen's test from now on, he's good with that. Uh, anybody else know what might be in common with these four guys? They were presidents, okay, but they were a specific kind of president. I'm hearing some uh, interesting guesses. In at least one of these men's presidential elections, these four men lost the popular vote, but they were declared president anyways. <laughs> yep. Uh, so let's just stop here for a moment. It's possible to lose an election, but still win the presidency. Uh, I think that gives us all hope. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I'm looking around the room and Maybe you're going to be president, and that's great. I'll happily vote for you. But the president of the United States probably isn't coming from within this room, right? These four men, as they look, looked around, they realized they were losers. And yet somehow they were winners. John Quincy Adams, uh, top left. He finished 44,804 votes behind Andrew Jackson in 1824. Rutherford B. Hayes, who's the guy top right? Yep, top right. 
he finished 264,292 votes behind Samuel J. Tilden in 1876. Remember, the Civil War ends in 1865, so we're, we're healthily in that Reconstruction era. He loses by a quarter million votes. Or Benjamin Harrison, bottom left, 95,713 votes behind Grover Cleveland, our only president who, who served non-consecutive terms. That was 1888. Or who's bottom right? George W. Bush. We all recognize him. He, uh, he finished 543,816 votes behind Al Gore. Half a million people more voted for Al Gore than they vote, than voted for George W. Bush in 2000. Or, or what about the election of 1860 when our nation was so deeply divided that we had four candidates get somewhere north of 12% of the vote, but somewhere south of 40% of the vote. Abraham Lincoln became president in 1860 with 39.6% of the vote. 39.6% of the vote. Let's, like, does that kind of blow your mind at all? That's less than 40%. I'm not a math major, but 39% is less than 40%, right? And yet that guy got to be president because he won almost 60% of the electoral college votes. What an upside down world we live in, huh? But what made Lincoln successful and well worth being on at least two different pieces of American currency it, it, it's not in who he wasn't. It, it, it's not that he wasn't a clear landslide victor, but instead it was about who he chose to be. What do we remember Lincoln for? The Emancipation Proclamation. What else do we remember Lincoln for? That's right, the Gettysburg Address. What else do we remember Lincoln for? That's right, the second inaugural address. We remember him for the way that he chose to lead our nation through a very difficult time. He grew up with a father who hated learned men. And as a result, guess what he did? He learned. When his dad would take his books and chuck them into the fire, he'd sit there and go, huh, all I've got left is my Bible. Yes, I'll read that. His dad was a man who kept his family poor because of a lack of work ethic, constantly moving from job to job to job. He lived in three different states before he was 16. And Lincoln strove to do more good than his father had done. See, some of us grow up with really great father figures and some of us grow up with father figures like Lincoln where sometimes we got to overcome something. At age 23, and in, in his first race for public office, Lincoln said that every man is said to have his peculiar ambition. I have no other so great as being truly esteemed by my fellow men, by rendering myself worthy of their esteem. See, I think those long nights reading the Bible, they started to sink in with him. You know that many of our presidents have been uh, liars, uh, lawyers, 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 lawyers. You know that many of our presidents have been lawyers. Did you know that Lincoln, there've been 26 presidents who have been lawyers. Lincoln tried more cases in court than the other 25 combined. He also settled more cases than the other 25 combined. This was a man who got out and did work. 
I think it was his care and concern for his fellow man that drove him to work hard, to be known for his desire to do goodwill, to find a common ground whenever that was possible. And when it wasn't to, to be willing to pursue something to the point of finish, I think that's what made Lincoln great. And it all came from a result of his deep and abiding faith and active faith. He said that, he, that the Emancipation Proclamation was to fulfill a, a, a commitment to his maker. In the second inaugural address, if you remember, he ends it with malice towards none and charity towards all. Do you remember? Also in the second inaugural address, he reminds our nation in a very short speech that we should pray on at least three different occasions. See, I think that old Abe Lincoln, stovepipe hat, he, he had read our passage in James today. I hope that you've still got your Bible. We're going to fly through it here in three and a half seconds. James 2, 14 to 26. This is the point where I kind of tap dance while you reach for your Bibles. You turn there and, and we all look at this together. As a church that feels called to loving people, teaching the word and living the journey, I wonder if you'll listen. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. <laughs> Good. Even the demons believe that. And at least they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, it was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Do you hear the story of Abraham Lincoln in that text? A man who fell asleep reading his Bible by candlelight and then would go and act, defending the poor, defending those who couldn't do them, defend themselves. If we look at the beginning of this passage, we have a section that seems to continue the, the previous week's period of thought. Anybody here last week? Yeah, Roy Joe, you remember he, he was talking about uh, how uh, we demonstrate a mercy that triumphs over judgment. How do we do that? By taking note of what we do. It makes sense with our church's mission statement. Loving people, teaching the word, living the journey. These are three active nouns that remind us that we have some work to do. And before we fall into the same trap that Martin Luther did, I, I think we need to remember that James and Paul, they're starting from two different places. Martin Luther hated James. He said, we should just rip it out of our Bibles and chuck it into the fire along with Lincoln's dad and all those books. 
But Paul was starting from a place, uh, for example, Galatians 3, Ephesians 2, Romans 4, if you want to look at it later, it's, he's talking about how we initially come to faith. And I think James is talking about those who have already come to faith. It's two different kinds of things. They're, they're not in opposition. Instead, they're meshed together. It's important to pay attention to that pesky little context, isn't it? James, verse 14. It begins with a rhetorical question. If you're not familiar with the ancient Greek rhetoric, he is using a style of writing called diatribe. I didn't know that I was learning ancient Greek rhetorical uh, strategies while growing up in my house. But I knew what a diatribe was. Can I get an amen? Not too loudly because your parents might be in here. That was supposed to be funny. That was not. That's good. All right. Uh, but here he begins with a reductio ad absurdum kind of argument. He, he begins with a reduction to the absurd. Then we have rhetorical questions galore. We have irony, even sarcasm, and then example after example after example. And then we have a nice, neat conclusion of why James is right. Sounds kind of like my house whenever I'm right or my mom's right or my sister's right or somebody else is right. So the issue is how best to be a doer of what God wants. Something that we first saw in Hebrews 1.22. Do you remember it? It's on the screen. There we go. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers and deceive yourselves. And that thought, I think, is continued here. So verses 14 to 16, do you see a real faith in action working through here? Or do you see a faith in action? A lack of faith, a faith that isn't doing anything. In, in, verse, 16, in verse 15, we have a literally translated a naked man. So uh, today, I actually invited uh, one of my friends. He has that's not true, okay? But imagine if, if a naked person came in here, who, somebody who needed real clothes, and we all said, well, man, isn't that great? This is, this is just wonderful. Man, I can't wait to go home and take off my church clothes and get into my comfy stuff. And we, if we didn't do anything about his needs. So verse 15, we have a naked brother or sister. By verse 16, we've suggested that they go out and get some food and clothes. It's kind of like screaming someone to get a job, doesn't this show something about the lack of care of the person hollering at the person in need? It's kind of like Marie Antoinette, who has been probably falsely attributed with saying, qu'il mange de la brioche. Let them eat cake when faced with the bread shortage of the peasants. This is a chosen naivete. It's not innocent. It is guilty. So by the time that we've made it to verse 17, we have a faith that is a faith in itself not in God. We have faith in a lot of things, don't we? I have faith that whenever I go out and I start my car, it will start. Now, sometimes that faith has been misplaced, but for the most part, I have faith that it will start. Or you know what? I have faith that we'll be able to get to Peru. We'll be able to hop on a plane and meet some kids and do some good stuff, and that'll be just great. Or, you know what, I, I, I have faith that, you know, our students, we're going to have a great summer for us this summer. You know, we'll, we'll go swimming and we'll talk about a little bit of Bible and we'll eat way too many snow cones. I mean, like, I, I have faith that we can do a lot of that kind of stuff. But if none of that, it, 
is used to demonstrate a faith in God, then we have not done anything. Verses 18, verses 19, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Have you ever known anybody like that? Look at everything I'm, I'm doing. They're usually your most prolific Facebook or Twitter friend, okay? If that's you, stop it, okay? Please just, never mind. But by the time that we get to verse 19, we have one of the few times that we can say literally, and I have it actually mean literally. Do you have, does anybody have that friend who says, I was literally about to melt? No, you weren't. You were just hot, all right? You were not literally about to melt, okay? So by the time that we get to verse 19, we have literally an ungodly faith. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It points us to the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are some things that we can go to church and just say and have that be a, a great little mantra. You have called me higher. You have go, called me deeper. And God, I'll go wherever you send me. It'll be fun. And then we walk out and we go where we want to go, how we want to go, to who we want to go. And so like most small children who aren't getting their way, James turns to calling us names. He calls us a fool, if you remember the living Bible. Fool. The NIV tries to soften that just a little bit. You foolish person. No, he's calling us a fool. We are fools who are empty and intellectual, emotionally, in even moral kinds of way, uh, ways. And we deserve every blunt question that James continues to ask us, don't we? Let's not be too hasty just to shrug it off as if James is talking to somebody else. Isn't that the, the common thing that we do here? We read a text like this and we start elbowing our neighbor. Hey, are you listening? This is for you right here. But when we start doing that, we miss the reality of what God is doing in our lives. I think that's how we get in trouble reading the Bible. So finally, we make it to Abraham. Anybody remember the story of Abraham? Good, okay, well, great. So you've got some work to do in Genesis this afternoon, okay? Uh, just go ahead and take some time this Father's Day. Uh, I'm sure that your dad will understand if you don't have a dad here or he's somewhere else or wherever, uh, just go ahead and spend some time, okay? Abraham, just go read the story. That's important, all right? So we make it to Abraham. He's someone whose faith was active and vibrant. This is a faith that is used as a verb 244 times in the Greek New Testament. 244 times as a verb. It's only used 243 as a noun. Do you understand that the word faith is used as a verb more than it's used as a noun? How do we leave this place and how do we faith? How do we walk out those doors and, and, and faith in a way that, that is different and is, is completely separate from the way that we have faithed in the past? How do we as God's people say, you know what, I'm tired of faithing in the way that I've always faithed. It's time for me to faith in a new way. What's the definition of an insanity? An old African proverb I've heard is that when we pray, we must move our feet. We've got to go somewhere different. We've got to do something different. 
we as Christians, we've got to be moving. And it's the fact that Abraham is willing to go somewhere different, to do something different, that he earns the title as God's friend. Is it through sheer force of will or is it through going to church enough or is it through even reading his Bible, the story of Abraham? Is it through him just looking in a mirror and being like, man, I'm just super great. Is that how he does it? No, he grabs his son and he says, you know what? If God tells me to do this, then I'm going to do this and I'm going to let God figure this out because I trust that God is big enough to fix this for me. By acting as a friend, by acting as how a friend of God should act, Abraham is called God's friend. And Rahab, sweet, sweet Rahab, she is held up as, as an example of faith, but even here she can't escape her former occupation. We, James can't even let her off the hook. I feel so bad for her. Look at verse 25, in the same way. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute. She can't escape who she was, but does that stop her from acting how God called her to act? And yet she makes it into the pantheon of people that we should be like. She can't even escape the, the Rahab, the prostitute moniker in Hebrews 11.31. The hall of faith. By faith, Rahab the prostitute. I feel so bad for her. Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said it like this. It is the easiest thing in the world to believe as everybody else believes, but the difficulty is to believe a thing alone. When no one else thinks as you think, to be the solitary champion of a righteous cause, when the enemy mustereth, we should start speaking like this, mustereth, his thousands into battle. Now this was the faith of Rahab. She had not one who felt as she did, who could enter into her feelings and realize the value of her faith. She stood alone. Oh, it is a noble thing to be the lonely follower of despised truth. There be some who could tell you a tale of standing up alone. There have been days when the world poured continually a river of infamy and calamity upon them, but they stemmed the torrent and by continued grace made strong in weakness, they held their own until the current turned. And they in their success were praised and applauded by the very men who sneered before. Then did the world accord them the name of great. But where lay their greatness? Why in this, that they stood as firm in the storm as they stood in the calm, that they were as content to serve God alone as they were to run by fifties. To be good, we must be singular. Christians must swim against the stream. Verse 26, we have a fairly abrupt ending. As the body without the the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. All right, argument's done. There we go. We've used our rhetorical questions. We've provided examples. We've had some irony, a little bit of sarcasm, just the way that God intended. And then we just kind of wrap it up in a nice, neat little bow, right? That's easy. We're all going to go out of this place different than we came in. And we're, we're all going to commit to doing different kinds of things, right? James has convinced every single one of us, Yeah. Good, all right, come on. Uh, Chad, we're just gonna cancel the rest of the service. We're all ready to go, okay? Is, is that all right? See, I think verse 26, the conclusion is where it gets difficult. This isn't easy believism. This isn't a faith that just lends itself for the intellectual crowd. 
Instead, it's an actionable kind of faith, one that provides direction for every Christian, one that calls you and I out of our seats for, uh, into something more than we're currently doing. Faith or belief. These are words that are used as much as verbs as they are nouns. So why do we just think of faith or belief as a static concept? Well, I came to faith in Christ when I was six years old. Yeah, but you haven't done anything with it since you were six. Oh, great. You had a Falls Creek experience at 15? Fabulous. Great. No. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of facing and believing on the sidelines, getting used to and comfortable with what is going on while we continue to have horrifically objectionable actions happening on the local, state, national, and international levels. So this is a call to action. I'm asking each and every one of you to make a commitment today as a result of God's leading in your individual lives and in our lives together as a church and to share it with someone that you know that you can be accountable to. I'll provide three recommendations, okay? I wanna make this as easy as possible for you today because I get that sometimes this is difficult. It's sometimes it's hard for us to see where our blind spots are. That's why they're blind spots, right? First, I'd like to suggest that you give some more time to those who need it. James chapter one, verse 27 says that we should take care of our orphans and widows. We should take care of those who can't take care of themselves. So our first recommendation is that you go find some way to commit to our community ministry. It's summer. Volunteerism always goes down during the summer. And yet it's crazy because people still need stuff in the summer. People still need friends. They still need somebody to sit there and, 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 and eat a meal with them. They still need people to wash dishes in the kitchen. I don't know about you, but that frustrates me that we are constantly running short. I'm, I'm going to be renewing my commitment to this ministry. There's going to be very little on the first and third Wednesday, uh, Sundays in the afternoons and early evenings that's going to be more important than being up here with the people that are already coming to our doors. Do you understand how easy this is? You and I, we have a very tangible way to go and love the people that God has already provided to us. Maybe you can't make this commitment, and I think that's okay. You could still give time to those who need it. Uh, Jim Stewart, uh, he's got a list at the Oklahoma Baptist Children's Home that, uh, of boys and girls and house parents and this person and that person who need love and all kinds of support. It's a list that goes from here to the door. They have like a bajillion acres over there of grass that need to be mowed. Mowing grass stinks. It's terrible, especially when you're not getting paid for it. But it's, it's, it's wild because at the children's home, they haven't yet engineered grass that will stop growing. So they still need people to come and mow. Mowing not your thing. Great. Jim, you got some other deals for us? Yeah, okay, great. Fantastic. There you go. You, you, you got your in. There's need. We just need to open our eyes and look for it. Recommendation number two. As someone with a faith that is action, that, that is active, we need to be leading the way with our discussions of race in this country. I'm tired of hearing stories of people shooting others on the basis of bigotry and racism. 
We can't bury our heads in the sand any longer. If racism were dead, would what happened last Wednesday have occurred? That's a real question. If racism were dead, would what happened last Wednesday have occurred? No. No, racism is still alive and active. I'd love to see every single person in this congregation beginning a a dialogue about racism. Find somebody who is saying something absolutely terrible and let them know, you're saying something terrible. Shut your mouth. With the love of Christ, of course. Maybe you're one of those people who's really socially active on your Facebook or Twitter feed. Great. Start the conversation that way. So maybe you do it verbally. Maybe you do it via social media. I don't care if you use a Black Lives Matter, White Lives Matter, Latino, Latina Lives Matter, Arab Lives Matter. Pick your favorite group and, and, and remind us that we're all people created in the image of God. That murder is murder no matter who the victim is. And we can no longer ignore this issue and hope that it goes away. If racism were dead, Clementa C. Pinckney would still be alive preaching in his church in Charleston today. Before you go blaming one individual as an outlier, come talk to me after service and we'll sit down and look at some of the preliminary research that I did here. Uh, A rough sketch is that approximately 300,000 hate crimes 300,000 hate crimes, 300,000. That's one per every 1,100 people. Yes, that's a rough estimate, but at the same time, 300,000 hate crimes happened in the U.S. last year. Recommendation number three, get creative. We're a Baptist church. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. I wholeheartedly believe that God has uniquely called you to something that he has not called me to that, will only get, that won't get accomplished in the same way if you're not willing to go do it. We don't need a false humility that plays small. Oh, oh God, I don't know about that over there. I see that that's a need, but I, I'm not sure that that's for me. No, if you see a need, we need you to go do something about it. And if you need help, holler. Find somebody. We're all called to something. Maybe there's somebody in this room who's called the same thing that you are. We need you to recognize what you're called to and then go do it. Where do you work? That's your mission field. Where do you go to school? That's your mission field. Pick the outcast, the bottom of the barrel, the person that nobody else is willing to talk to and go befriend them. Have a real talk with them. Maybe your friend group is kind of exclusive. It just happens to us sometimes. That's how our friend groups work. We become friends with people and then we, we go to church and we only talk to our friends and we, we see other people and we're like, oh man, I hope that one of the deacons is saying hey to them or I hope one of the, the greeters said hey to them on their way in uh, or, I, I, you know, I mean, uh, Clint, you know, he's a really happy, nice guy. You know, I, I bet he probably said hey to him on the way in. No, if you see somebody new, go talk to them. Invite them into your friend group. Just do something, anything. This is no longer the time to hear another sermon and go home and eat another lunch, celebrate another Father's Day without any real life change. This is the time for God's people to do God's work. Are you willing to join? So faith 
without works is dead.